Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red. I'm joined by Nizar Hassan, as always. And this week, we have got two great, amazing guests with us. Uh, we have Yomna Makhlouf, who is a lawyer and a member of Legal Agenda. And we also have Tara Zaydan, who is the executive director of Helm, uh, an LGBTQ rights organization, also a member of the Legal Agenda. Uh, welcome, guys. It's really great to have you. And we're going to be talking about a really, really important topic today, and that is LGBTQ rights in the country and the activism to expand those rights. Of, of course, though, before we get to that, we've got a lot of news. And and I'm, I'm so sorry to everybody. We usually try to go over all of the important things that happened over the past week, but last week we were off. So there's literally too much news for us to cover. So we're going to cover just like the, the main headlines from the past two weeks. Starting, of course, with the vote of confidence in Parliament for the new cabinet. So, of course, the new cabinet was uh, announced on January 31st, but before the new cabinet can actually do anything constitutionally, they have to get a vote of confidence in Parliament. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Parliament had the sessions where they discussed uh, and debated everything. It was televised, so of course... Uh, it, it was just long speeches. It was like three days worth of speeches. In the end, they ended up giving confidence 111 to 6, but not before some fireworks happened uh, in the chamber. Uh, so I, I think each day sort of had like one highlight. Uh, the, the the first day... Ali Hassan Khalil and Jamil Sayed. Yeah, which I thought was really interesting because Jamil Sayed is a Shiite MP who is one of these people who is tipped to be... Uh, potentially a successor for Nabi Berri, whenever Nabi Berri is no longer the Speaker of the Parliament. And so he is going after, Jamila Sayed, this potential successor to Nabi Berri, is going after one of Nabi Berri's top political aides, Ali Hassan Khalil, which is just weird politics. I don't think I understand all of it, but it, it's interesting that Jamila Sayed is so willing to go against Berri on, on this. Yeah, I mean... Uh... I thought as well that he's kind of waging the battle too early with, with this uh, with this fight with Ali Hassan Khalil. Uh, so day two, though, the fireworks were between Hezbollah and the Kata'ib party. So a, an MP uh, for Hezbollah, Nawaf Musawi, uh, said some things about Bashir Jamail, who we have covered before on this podcast, a, a towering figure in Lebanese history. And that drew the ire of Nadim Jamel in particular, who is Bashir's son. And later on, Nadim held this protest in Sassine Square and said literally the Kataib, we're ready to rearm, which was a huge thing. Yeah, in a, in a 200 people protest, which is which was weird. Like his speech or his escalation was much, his, was too exaggerated for the size of the, of the event that was happening. And, and the whole provocation that Sam Ismail was speaking and then Sam Ismail said that, uh, I don't know if Aoun accepts that uh, he is a president who got to the to the office through Hezbollah's arms. So Musa, he said, yeah, there was once a president who came in on the Israeli tank, meaning uh, Bashir Ismail came in in coordination with the, and uh, under Israel's occupation of, of parts of Beirut. So um, it was clear from like even within Hezbollah, with the Hezbollah bloc who were sitting in parliament, that Musa was just being like, you know, uh, spontaneous in a, in a negative way. You know, he was just saying whatever. Right. And, and he didn't uh, say anything that was factually wrong, uh, but it was just like the fact that he said it. And, you know, it, in Lebanese politics, there's a certain temperance that you have to obey. And if you don't, then you're sort of like going outside, outside the bounds of, of what is normal. And they felt that this was outside the bounds of normal. 
after all of this happened as well, uh, Hezbollah actually reined him in, right? So they they came back the next day and apologized, uh, and and everybody seemed to sort of make up. And and then later on, Hezbollah actually froze the role of Musawi uh, as an MP. Uh, and so we we will see what happens. Like Hezbollah seems to have made a lot of uh, conciliatory steps after this outburst. Yeah, but it's it's okay to blo- to freeze him from like joining the blocks meetings. But the weird thing is that they said they froze his parliamentary activity, which should be unconstitutional, you know, for a party to stop an MP from from doing his work. Right, theoretically. And and then the the final days outburst was again from Jamil Syed. Uh, this time uh, with Semi Fat Fat, uh, which was actually kind of a a funny one. Like he called him Ibn Imbere. You were born yesterday, and Sus, like a like newborn chick, because Semi Fat Fat is a freshman MP. He is one of the youngest members of Parliament. Obviously, this was not received well. Uh, you know, you, you should have told, literally told him to shut up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you should have a minimum modicum of respect for a fellow MP, right? E- even if he is, you know, younger than you. But all of that didn't end up mattering. Uh, they still voted late Friday night, 111 to 6, to uh, grant the cabinet confidence. And and those those six, by the way, who voted against uh, confidence were the three Kataeb MPs, uh, Paula Yaoubian, uh, Civil Society Sabah uh, MP, uh, Jamila Syed, and Osama Saad. So a, a really like overwhelming lopsided victory, which is what everybody expected uh, for the cabinet. And, and that meant that as of late Friday night, Lebanon had a government. A fully empowered government, that something that has not been the case since May 22nd. But but things did not quite go as planned, right, with this national unity government. Less than 72 hours after the vote, uh, one of the ministers popped up in Damascus. Salah al-Garib, uh, the minister of state for refugee affairs, showed up having holding a meeting with uh, a high-ranking Syrian official on the refugee file. Which, of course, is a huge shift in policy for the cabinet because uh, Gharib's predecessor, Moine Merabi, was from the future movement, was very vocally anti-Bashar al-Assad, very vocally anti-Damascus. And and so all of a sudden, w- with this movement of the portfolio from future to basically Talal Erslan's man, Gharib, we see a huge shift in policy, which caused a lot of problems in, in the cabinet itself. People saying, oh, we shouldn't have done that. Where is the unity here? Uh, and and that, that trickled down to problems on Thursday when cabinet met. They ended up having a, a big fight over this issue, uh, not just over Gharib, but also over remarks that uh, Elias Boussab, the defense minister, made in Munich that basically said, oh, we need to be talking to the Syrians. And, and especially the, the LF was uh, very vocal on this, uh, saying, hey, you're not respecting the dissociation agreement. All of that stuff. Aoun, on the other hand, who was chairing the uh, meeting uh, of the Council of Ministers, said the dissociation policy does not apply to the refugee file. It applies to the actual conflict. That was Aoun's statement. But anyway, uh, the cabinet meeting ended up being adjourned early. <laughs> they didn't get, they had uh, like 103 items on the agenda or something like that. I think they got to a couple of them, uh, buying fuel for EDL or something like that. So cabinet is not off to a great start. That is sort of like the bottom line here. Um, one other firestorm 
that uh, got kicked off this week uh, deals with Parliament. And as you recall, after the elections, there were a number of appeals that were filed against the results of those elections, uh, 17 to be precise. Well, last week, the Constitutional Council ruled on all of them. Uh, and in 16 of these cases, they just rejected the appeal entirely, uh, most notably uh, Jamal Haddad's appeal in East Beirut. So in those cases, it's done. There is no court that they can appeal to beyond the Constitutional Council. It is the court of last resort here. However, in the one case that they didn't, they actually ended up unseating Tripoli MP Dima Jumeli of the future movement and calling a new election. And I, th I thought it was very interesting, the, just the numbers that it came down to. Uh, so this had been the closest race in the elections. A swing of 25 votes from the future movement uh, list in Tripoli to uh, the list of Faisal Karami in Tripoli would have actually flipped the result. After the Constitutional Council reviewed the numbers, they actually narrowed that gap so that it was actually a difference of one vote. It, it, it is on like the, the razor's edge, the, the final numbers that the Constitutional Council came up with for this race. And so they said, well, we're just going to have another election, which really pissed off the Karami side because in the new election, it's going to be a, a majoritarian first-past-the-post election, and that is going to be very hard for Karami's side to win. A lot of things uh, are going to happen. It's very early right now. We we only know Dima Jumeli for sure is running. Uh, as of the recording, we're recording this on Saturday morning. Only Dima Jumeli has said, I'm going to be running in the spy election. We expect Tahanaji, who was the uh, guy on Karami's list, also the official appellant in the case, to also be running. But that has not been declared. And of course, all eyes are sort of on Najim Ati. Titan of Tripoli, basically, he's, he can sort of play the kingmaker here, depending on what he wants. People expect him to probably go along with uh, Dima Jumeli. They've got a good relationship uh, between Jumeli and, uh, and Mikati's office. And also, Mikati has sort of patched over differences with Hariri in, in recent months. So people would expect him probably to go along with it, but who knows? He could do anything. He could put his own candidate forward. He could support Karami. We just don't know. It's really early, but this election is going to happen in two months, which is the constitutionally mandated period for, for a by-election like this. And Rael Hassan, the interior minister, has confirmed as well that, hey, we're going to do this election right. It's going to be within two months. So we've got another election on our hands, Nizar. Yeah, very exciting. More violations, more lost votes. I can't wait. And speaking of Rael Hassan, she got a little bit of hot water recently for bringing up this sort of taboo subject, uh, civil marriage, uh, which I'm very happy that our guests are with us this week because I, I, I have a feeling you guys might have something to say on this. Yes, definitely. Uh, first of all, I would uh, like to say thank you for having us here today. We are very glad to be here. Uh, regarding civil marriage, for me, uh, I don't think there's uh, even an issue because it is uh, pretty clear that the legislator has an obligation to uh, promulgate a civil marriage law, uh, an optional civil marriage law, uh, given that Article 9 of the Constitution guarantees the freedom of consciousness that uh, uh, he qualifies even, that the Constitution qualifies is even as absolute. So if an individual cannot choose actually to be uh, to celebrate a civil marriage and to be submitted to a civil legislation in the matters of uh, his personal status, 
uh, this is of course contrary to Article 9. So for me, it's not even an issue and uh, uh, the legislator has not been doing his job when he is not promulgating actually a, uh, an optional civil marriage uh, legislation. Yeah, I mean, this has been a long-standing issue in Lebanon. The, the last time it came up was in 2013. And, and, and back then, Hariri, Saad Hariri actually came out in support of civil marriage. He, he, has, he has not done the same thing. He has not reiterated that support this time around, though. Um, I think that um, the issue of civil marriage being raised by the Minister of Interior is a very interesting litmus test for a whole bunch of other rights-based uh, movements and issues in the country. And it's important to put it in context that the new Minister of Interior, since her uh, appointment, has been on a charm offensive particularly aimed at uh, members of Lebanese civil society that have emerged as lightning rods for Lebanese public opinion. She has removed barriers that the previous Minister of Interior had put in place. She has been uh, vocal about women's rights. It's very obvious that she, uh, through uh, the Prime Minister through her, is indicating a new a shift in how they plan on running the ministry and on how they plan to maneuver, on at least on these civil and social issues in Lebanon. What's interesting is that uh, the minister chose her words very carefully. She called for a dialogue on civil marriage. She didn't support it. She didn't sort of throw herself out there. She wanted to test the waters. And of course, uh, much like in 2013, uh, there was a great deal of backlash uh, against this by the religious uh, authorities in Lebanon. Right. It It didn't matter that she chose her words carefully at the end of the day, because still we have the statements from Darul Fatwa, the Sunni authority, as well as uh, just the other day, the Maronite church coming out, right? Indeed. The admonishment came in a very polite, uh, diplomatic way, but it basically said that she had no right to even call for a dialogue, that this is not a dialogue that involved the government, which is something that is uh, very alarming when, uh, just as Yumna said, this is a constitutional civil issue. So, right, and these are ultimately unelected religious leaders making this demand. Exactly. This is unelected religious leaders reprimanding a government official. Yes, and especially since like uh, uh, religious communities do not have exclusive jurisdiction on matters that are related to uh, the individual uh, in the Lebanese society and uh, regarding family life in the Lebanese society. They don't have an exclusive jurisdiction. Their jurisdiction is recognized by the state, but only within the limits that the state would accept actually to recognize uh, this jurisdiction. So the state, of course, always has a hand on matters related to the individual, on on matters related to his family life. And uh, what I would like actually to add that uh, it's the irony in Lebanon because Lebanese individual uh, may go actually abroad to get married civilly and their civil marriage is recognized in Lebanon and we will have a civil foreign legislation applied actually to Lebanese individuals who have no link with this foreign country. And when somebody actually raises the question of having a dialogue about the civil marriage in Lebanon, voices go up to say, no, this is not acceptable. Actually, it is being practiced in Lebanon uh, since the creation of the country. So I don't really see what's the obstacle here, uh, especially that saying that only people can uh, that Lebanese individual may only go abroad actually to get married civilly means actually that you are only opening this option to people who actually have the means to go abroad and to celebrate it to choose actually to exercise their freedom of uh, of religion. And this is I think this is the, the heart of the matter, actually. 
And I think apart from Adal Fatwa having um, a sense of exaggerated power in, in, in the public debate, uh, I think also we have to always remember that these institutions are state-funded, they get more money than some of our ministries, a major part of what they do is personal status matters. So we have to take into consideration that the material interests of the religious institutions are at stake. Um, if you if you want to find out how much and look at the budget, they're under the office of the prime minister for, for the uh, Sunni and Shiite and Druze. Yeah, and, and the, uh, there's uh, an initiative called the Ghirbal Initiative that compared uh, the budget for religious institutions to the budget of the ministries of environment, industry, and uh, youth and sports. And religious institutions alone take more money than the three of the ministries. So you can you can imagine the size of this uh, this matter. But what I found interesting the, in the last week is that while the Al-Fatah was so aggressive against civil marriage because maybe they're afraid that mandatory civil marriage would harm their institutions, the Maronite Church, with uh, with headed by Patriarch Shara Rai, had a very different opinion. They said we are for we can we might support. Um, mandatory civil marriage for everyone and then each person can go and have the religious marriage that they want but we are against an option in civil marriage law because first of all this doesn't exist in any country that was the only reason and it's not convincing but it's it's good politics what they're doing is basically saying we want a mandatory civil marriage which Dal Fatwa would never accept uh, so they're playing politics by throwing the ball to Dal Fatwa or to the Muslim side and then pretending or um, taking the role of the, uh, you know, the more liberal institution that's open to change, but, you know, the Muslims don't want it. Yeah, but there, there's nothing that to suggest that the Maronites actually do want this, right? And, and they, they would also, like, lose out, uh, supposedly, on a lot of revenue as well if this were to happen, which is another thing that was uh, brought up by uh, Jean Chaban the last time this all went down back in 2013, for instance. Yeah. Yeah, but I think that what is missing from this whole debate is actually uh, the Lebanese people. What do the Lebanese people want? And nobody is asking and nobody is... Uh, I mean, we are always uh, referring to Dar al-Fatwa or the Maronite Church or the religious community leaders, but what about the Lebanese people? I think this is where uh, this debate should uh, go in the future. Like, uh, the issue that was raised by the Minister of Interior is interesting and in engaging a dialogue would be through engaging a dialogue with the Lebanese people and the Lebanese society and not necessarily the religious uh, representatives of the communities. But that dialogue isn't going to happen in parliament, the people's representatives, uh, because Nabi Berri has announced, no, we're, we're not going to touch this right now. So it, it seems right now this is sort of like a dead issue. Um, I don't think it's a dead issue. It's an issue that's continu continuously assassinated and then resurrects itself. And I think the Minister of Interior was very clever in wording uh, her intervention the way that she did because she also, by doing that, uh, created an opening for so many other uh, members of Lebanese society to resurrect this conversation. Even though it might be a dead issue in Parliament, in other uh, arenas in the country and other sort of the political and social salons all over the country, this is the burning issue. I think what's also missing from the debate is the gender lens and the fact that uh, civil marriage in many cases gives women more rights, more maneuverability than many of the other current personal status laws that are governed by each uh, sect. And I think that many religious institutions in Lebanon are going to put up a very big fight the way they have put up when it comes to women's rights, when it comes to gender and sexuality. 
because they're afraid that this might be the first bead that will sort of you know break the necklace that if uh, civil civil marriage is ushered in that this creates a paradigm shift in how the Lebanese people view their government view their law and view uh, the policy making process and they see it as the beginning potentially of a shrinking role for religious institutions many of which have not been viewed very in a very positive manner by Lebanese civil society for years now so uh, i very that's why i think this is a very interesting issue to watch i think the minister of interior is a very interesting person to to watch as well to see where it goes because many other rights based coalitions and issues are waiting and learning lessons from the civil marriage debate uh, going on right now and one of those is our main topic for today the the state of lgbt rights in the country to get into this i think first off we do have to talk about the law yes it, it is definitely it, it, <laughs> it is it legal to be gay in lebanon well if you are expecting an answer yes or no i would say yes definitely Actually, um, we have an article in the criminal code, Article 534 of the criminal code, which actually considers that uh, any intercourse against nature is punishable up to one year of imprisonment. Of course, when you read this article, uh, if you are a lawyer or if you are not a lawyer, you will immediately perceive the difficulties that it raises because uh, same-sex intercourse is not against nature, of course. What happened actually that a lot of judges used to interpret this article as being applicable to same biological sex relationships and intercourses. And a group of lawyers actually uh, from Legal Agenda started challenging this interpretation of Article 534 by saying that uh, same biological sex relationships are not against nature. And we've had actually success with five courts until now, and we are keeping on with uh, our fight, our, with our legal fight. The, this article, 534, who, who does it actually target? Like, it, it, like, like you say, it is, it is very like vague and everything, but who, who ends up bearing the brunt of it? When the rubber meets the road, when a prosecutor is actually using this article, who gets charged? Well, what's interesting to know for people is that it is it was not just applied actually for individuals who identify as being gay or lesbians or trans individuals even. It was also applied within the frame of people who identify as heterosexuals. And it was applied also in cases involving uh, intercourse between uh, people of different biological sex. And this is why when we talk about the fight regarding Article 534 and the interpretation of this article, this is not just a question that is related uh, to a certain part of the community. Like it's not just about the LGBT community. It's about actually the Lebanese society as a whole, because this article is very dangerous and it can be used actually to legitimate the interference of the state in uh, very private matters where it really does not have a legitimacy to interfere into. Can you give like an example? You're, you're talking about this actually happened in like heterosexual sex has been criminalized by this as well. Can you give me an example or something without getting too into the details of, of what kinds, what does that mean? Well, in one case, actually, it was uh, a man that was convicted uh, for having a sodomy relationship with a woman based on Article 534, because they considered that uh, this kind of uh, intercourse was against nature. Uh, so you see that when a judge will uh, interpret the application of this article, he will have to go into every sexual act and every uh, aspect of it and judge whether he considers it to be against nature or not. 
And this is why we say that this article doesn't have any place in the criminal code because it's so vague because uh, it will all come down to into moral conceptions of what sexuality should be that are hidden behind the application of what would look like an objective uh, concept uh, as nature. But of course, when you ask anyone to define what nature is, uh, it will be impossible for an individual to tell you now what is against nature and what is not against nature. You mentioned it's up to the judges in a lot of these cases, but you you, you have had, you personally have had some success here. You, you, you were on the legal team uh, uh, for one or two of these cases, right? Yeah, it was the same case that was appealed and we won in front of the court of appeal for the first time. So so what what kinds of victories have we seen in recent can can you sort of take us through that? Yes. Well, the first decision was uh, a decision uh, in uh, 2009. It was a criminal individual criminal judge in uh, Betroun uh, who um, raised questions about the definition of the concept of nature. And his decision was really uh, very nice to read because he has a philosophical approach of nature. And he says that anything actually that uh, is the product of humanity cannot be considered as against nature. So this was the first decision. Then we've had a second uh, decision in 2014. In this decision, uh, the case was about a trans individuals. This is why some people were saying, no, 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 this uh, doesn't have anything to do with uh, uh, the application of this article regarding same sex, the same biological sex relationships. But when you read the decision, it's very interesting because you see that the judge actually recognizes gender identity and uh, specifically says that there should be no discrimination based on gender identity and sexual orientation. So it's pretty clear that uh, uh, the repercussions of his decision were also covering gay and lesbian uh, uh, intercourse and sexual relationships. Then we had the third decision in 2015. And in this decision, we see that the judge actually is talking about Article 534 and its interpretation and trying actually to understand this concept, looking at uh, WHO standards. Is uh, homosexuality a disease? And of course, when we look at WHO, WHO does not, the ICD does not consider homosexuality as a disease. So we cannot say that homosexuality actually is against nature. And then we've had the decision in 2017 where the individual judge actually went even further because he considered actually that whenever we talk about homosexual relationships or trans uh, individual relationships, all this falls under individual freedom and sexual freedom. And that uh, actually what would be against nature would be asking from individual to uh, not express their sexuality in the way they see fit. And this was the first time that this issue was actually uh, translated into fundamental rights. And what was interesting about this decision is that actually he read the concept of nature as natural rights and not as behavior against uh, uh, nature and this was uh, what was interesting about it the way you go through that it almost sounds like these sort of build on each other but the way i understand the, Le- the lebanese legal system is it's it's not like the system in the u.s or the common law system where you got precedent and judges can sort of like build on each other no here that's not supposed to happen so if we have an you know the next case that comes up 
like we cannot necessarily guarantee that they're going to fall back on any of these other judges' rulings, right? No, because we don't have a system of precedent in uh, Lebanon. So actually, each judge is free to rule as he sees fit by interpreting actually the text. So we may have other judges that will not adopt the same interpretation. But this being said, the fact that we've had a first ruling from a court of appeal is very important because, of course, the court of appeal has a moral authority because you know that if an individual judge of a lower rank would rule against the decision of the Court of Appeal. Once the decision is appealed in front of the same court, we would expect for the same court to overrule the first judge's decision. But of course, each judge in Lebanon is free to adopt uh, the interpretation of the article, and we are still going and challenging the article. The main point, actually, is to say that we cannot say today in the Lebanese society that a sexual relationship that does not aim to have children is a relationship against nature. And this applies for heterosexual relationships as much as for homosexual relationships. So I cannot I cannot understand how a judge can consider that such a relationship can be contrary to nature and that Article 534 uh, may be applicable. That was one of our main arguments because what was important to state is that this issue is not something that has been imported from the Western society. No, our concept as a Lebanese society fall into that. We have Lebanese NGOs, medical association, professional uh, medical association that are saying homosexuality should not be criminalized. It is not a disease. It is not against nature. So a Lebanese judge should actually follow the evolution of the society. And this is actually what the Court of Appeal said, that the interpretation of the article should go uh, according to social justice and according to the evolution of uh, the society we live in. Yeah, I totally agree Yumna, that, of course, homosexuality or gay rights is not something to be imported, as some of, some of our politicians or religious leaders might say. But what was imported was Article 534, right? It was inspired by French laws because before the French colonial times, uh, homosexuality was actually decriminalized by the Ottoman Empire. So uh, the French kind of brought us back on this one. Exactly. So how can you say it's even the intention of the Lebanese legislator? I don't think it was. And one of the arguments that we made is that when we look at the at the works behind the preparation of the criminal code, we don't see anything that is related to Article 534. And as you just correctly stated, what was imported from the West is not actually uh, homosexuality. It's actually the criminalization of homosexuality. Yeah, yeah. In addition to that, uh, it is incredibly difficult for anybody to prove that any sexual relations have taken place uh, in an investigation, whether they're unnatural, quote unquote, or not. The way this um, article manifests and uh, on the ground when it comes to security forces uh, arresting members of the LGBT community is that they don't wait to catch them performing any sexual acts in the public space. The overwhelming majority of detentions happen based on a person's appearance, based on a person's mannerisms, or based simply on the arresting officer's suspicion of a person belonging to the LGBTQ community. You mentioned earlier on who bears the brunt of all of these detentions uh, and, and arrests and the overwhelming majority of people that do get arrested happen to be trans people, particularly trans women. Uh, a great deal of refugees are also among the people that are arrested, as well as migrant workers, basically anybody without power. These individuals are not just arrested, they are 
taken in to police stations. They are illegally questioned. They are forced to open their phones in order for investigators to look inside for uh, quote-unquote incriminating material. Often there is no due process when it comes to investigating the violation. Often it's uh, about coercing through either physical or mental abuse uh, the individuals to say that they are gay, to sign a paper testifying that they are. And that is what is often presented as proof to the judge as opposed to an actual transparent due process. There is no uh, respect for protocol. There is no respect for human rights. There is barely a respect for procedure. In Lebanon, all cases that uh, have to do with Article 534 ought to be processed by what is called the Morality Protections Bureau, which is based in Beirut. Uh, Of the ISF, right? Yes, it belongs to the ISF. We have worked uh, as Halim very hard for years on trying to limit and stop the abuses in that protections bureau. We have made great progress in introducing new ways of dealing with LGBT uh, detainees. But unfortunately, LGBT people get arrested and detained all over the country, most of which do not get sent to the, the, the bureau, most of which suffer at the hands of police officers and vigilante type corrective measures uh, all around the country. And it's very difficult to get data. Yeah. So the, so this is sort of like it, it is based on a legal issue, but it's outside of the realm of the law. Right. So these security agencies are, quote unquote, enforcing the law, but they are not doing it with any sort of due process. And so it's sort of like beyond the scope. Like, yeah, if you can get if you can get the case to like this ISF branch, great. If you can get the case before a judge, even better, right? Because then you've got a shot. But most, well, I don't know if it's most, but a lot of them don't make it that far at all. Well, actually, the problem is, is that you are having, um, of course, when ISF or members of ISF are arresting a person, they are doing it based on uh, the public prosecutor's instruction, which is a judge. But what we are saying is that the Lebanese law does not criminalize identity. So you cannot actually arrest someone or have suspicion against someone just for being gay. Uh, The article talks about intercourse. So it's really regarding a certain uh, type of act. Regardless, Very specific. It's very specific. The problem is, is that the public prosecution is actually engaging into prosecuting people just based on their identity, which is like uh, uh, unconstitutional and against the criminal code, whatever interpretation we adopt of Article 534. The other problem that was raised uh, by Tare and that is very important is that when you talk about the rights of the defense uh, uh, during the investigation, uh, these rights actually don't really uh, uh, mean anything if you don't, don't have the guarantee of the presence of a lawyer during the investigation, which we do not have uh, under Lebanese legislation. So this is something that we should fight for as a civil society, because you can say, of course, that the individual has the right not to be abused. The individual has the right to remain silent. In most of these cases, you don't have any evidence. The only evidence is actually the person stating during the investigation that they are gay. And I don't understand why on 50 cases that I've had, all the individuals who have been interrogated are stating their uh, uh, sexual orientation or their gender identity. I don't understand why that is, why they do not just remain silent, as Article 47 of the Criminal Procedure Act states that uh, they can. If they are not exercising these defense rights, it's because there is uh, no guarantee for the presence of the lawyer who can really guarantee the application of Article 47 and the rights of defense. 
And and speaking of the, these issues with the security agencies, it goes it goes and, and and with the law, it goes beyond that. So if you are in a same sex relationship or something and you are abused, are you going to go to the ISF? Probably not. Of course not, because if you are going to go to the ISF and you are going to file a complaint, they will start investigating you instead of investigating the acts of abuse, instead of investigating the acts of extortion, they will start investigating you. Of course, once you get the case in front of a judge, you will be able to defend yourself. Uh, we will raise our uh, legal defense uh, like we've had, etc., etc. But to actually arrive to the court, it's a long way. And the problem is from being a victim, you will become the accused. And this is why uh, this uh, Article 534 raises lots of problems because it actually allows for the marginalization and the exploitation of a certain part of the of uh, the Lebanese society. I think uh, the experience of trans women in Lebanon best highlights these really unfortunate dynamics. We have had so many cases of trans women going to the police in order to report a robbery or assault or even as witnesses of other crimes and then been detained for weeks on end simply because they are trans women. In the eyes of many of uh, members of the security forces, trans women are always considered as sex workers. And we ha have multiple cases of which not just Article 534 is uh, applied, but also all of the uh, other articles in the Lebanese criminal code that uh, have to do with sex work. And uh, this, uh, this unfortunate reality leads to multiple kinds of abuse of an already extremely vulnerable member of the population who has borne the major brunt of the abuses and, 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 and the cases that we process in Lebanon. Trans people, particularly trans women, find it very hard to operate and maneuver publicly in Lebanon because anybody who's gender non-conforming and looks that way finds it excruciating difficult to access health services, even just waiting in a waiting room in a hospital and hearing somebody call out uh, a name that is a male name when you uh, look uh, more like a, a woman or a female. The higher risk of being uh, abused by uh, service uh, providers, the higher risk of being blackmailed or of being sexually harassed and knowing that all of these acts uh, will go with impunity because many members of this community would rather take it, bear the brunt uh, uh, and instead of going to the police because it's actually make things worse. But also with this we have seen legal advances. What was it, two of the last cases? It's three of three. the four cases, actually, uh, that uh, where we've got victories. Uh, in three of the four cases, uh, it was about trans individuals who have been prosecuted. Really, they're leading the way. They're like, they are, like, <laughs> we Definitely. should all, like, say thank you to, to the trans members of, of Lebanese society because, yeah, they're, they're, they are first off bearing the worst brunt of it, but also they're the ones who are making things better for all of the rest of us. Absolutely. Um, and we also have an, an issue with, uh, for instance, general security shutting down conferences on, on topics related to gender and, and reportedly banning those those uh, people for coming back the Nedwa conference last year that was shut down and, and reportedly some of those members who were coming from abroad were not allowed to come to re-enter the country uh and, and and this sort of like points to this larger issue right of a shrinking space for freedoms in general right for freedom of speech for freedom of association etc 
Yes, indeed. It's no coincidence that the same people that were behind the closure of the Nadwa conference were also some of the most vocal critics and attackers of the decision of the Minister of Interior to open up a conversation about civil marriage, mainly the Association of Muslim Scholars based in Tripoli, which is a city that is very interesting to watch because it's many of these same sort of non-governmental actors have exercised their influence on security institutions on government institutions such as general security in order to start stopping all forms of queer organizing particularly conferences particularly uh, public celebrations uh, that deal with gender and sexual rights and this is part of as you mentioned the shrinking space for public and private freedoms in Lebanon that is uh, we've seen disturbing cases of, of, of censorship where even activists who have tweeted their opinions that are critical of one member of the government or another are and are detained, are questioned, or are publicly shamed. Sometimes they've lost their jobs. So it is right. We, we've spoken on the on the podcast before about uh, people who were called into the Cyber Crimes Bureau, for instance. This is exactly part of this larger constellation of issues, uh, you know, facing activists and civil society people, and you know, like the the, the space of civil actors. Indeed. And it is, uh, in my opinion, a really big mistake because I think many of these institutions aren't paying close enough attention to the shifting demographics and the shifting opinions of Lebanese, particularly millennial, uh, younger generation on these issues of public and private freedoms. I think that the Minister of Interior has been doing her homework and looking at uh, emerging trends of where public opinion is heading and maneuvering in order to accommodate that as much as possible. There is a great disconnect between the way the Lebanese government views the reality on the ground and what the majority of Lebanese people do. In fact, the, the most recent study measuring attitudes, uh, Lebanese attitudes towards uh, LGBT people in Lebanon was conducted in 2015. And it very clearly showed that there has been an increase of up to 37% of the Lebanese population that believe homosexuality should be accepted by society. This, interestingly enough, is a jump from 18% only four years prior. So there is a rapid shift in this. Still, the majority of the Lebanese population do not believe that LGBT people should go to jail, but they do believe that the law should remain because they think it's a guarantor against this phenomenon spreading, which is an indication of how much they view it as a disease rather than a crime, per se. People actually still view this as a disease, then? Our data shows that, yes, the overwhelming majority of Lebanese people think of LGBT people as uh, suffering from a hormonal or a mental disorder and are deserving of care and help and need as opposed to incarceration or even worse, corporal punishment or capital punishment. The more severe the punishment goes, the the drastically less support uh, there is for it uh, among the Lebanese people. Uh, that this information and this upward trend seems to be missing from the calculus of the government and particularly of government institutions and not just on gender and sexuality rights across the board when it comes to issues of public and private freedoms the Lebanese people are slowly demanding more and more of those and the government seems to be completely deaf and ignorant of, of, of where the trend is going. I, uh, I just wanted to say that uh, when we speak actually about uh, freedom of speech uh, and individual freedoms, uh, the problem with these uh, general security crackdowns is that they are so quick 
in uh, shutting down the event uh, from a security point of view, that it makes it very impossible actually to go in front of a judge to uh, quickly enough to actually say that no, the freedom of speech is being uh, violated with these uh, types of security acts. Uh, but when we look actually, when a judge is actually being uh, brought in to, to rule on matters of uh, freedom of expression regarding LGBT issues, like what happened actually with the TV uh, reportage that was being made about uh, LGBT issues, uh, judges are Uh, saying actually that uh, people uh, from a certain religious background who are stating in the name of religion that these events should be banned or that any discussion on gender issues should be banned uh, are being ruled out because the judge is considering that they ha don't have any standing to say to actually prohibit such acts. So when uh, Tarek was uh, mentioning actually certain groups who are influencing general security in order to shut down uh, certain events, these groups do not have legal standing to do what they are doing. What I'm hearing is that we're facing this constellation of absolutely, to, to me, it seems like almost insurmountable problems. You, you've got the legal aspect, you've got the security services aspect, and, and then like fundamentally, you, you've just got public opinion, broadly speaking, against LGBT freedoms. I, am I wrong to be sort of pessimistic about this? Well, personally, I'm optimistic uh, about the way things are going forward which is why I chose to return to Lebanon and to do this work. Uh, first of all, uh, the numbers are on our side. There is clear indicative data that uh, people are becoming much more tolerant, much more informed of uh, matters that deal with uh, gender and sexuality and rights. And uh, th we're very optimistic in that this trend is upward and continuing. Second, uh, we have had multiple political experiences in Lebanon for the past few years that have indicated the birth of Lebanese politics inside Beirut. We've seen this from the advent of the municipal elections with Beirut Medinati two or three years ago, whereby you're finally seeing movement when, where civil society is becoming more political and more organized and having the right conversations, even though it seems for the external eye that it's a ragtag group of misfits. Uh, these conversations, these birth pangs are very much needed and have been absent for a very long part of our history. And the LGBT community is part and parcel of these conversations. We've been here since the beginning. Halem has been here uh, since uh, 2004, the first in the region, and is uh, not going uh, away anytime soon. And three, we maneuver in Lebanon the way all of other groups uh, and minorities uh, in Lebanon uh, maneuver. This is a country of immense diversity that is clamped together in a very small space. And people have existed and thrived in the cracks that diversity has given us. The problem is we haven't tipped the needle where we have realized that Lebanon's diversity is its strength and not its weakness. I firmly believe that uh, like all of the other uh, causes that uh, are also circulating around us, we negotiate every single day on a micro level to a macro level the little tiny victories that we have that are compounded into what this movement has become. We're very cautious in how we proceed. We're very cautious that our actions affect uh, the communities that we serve. But uh, our approach for the past 10 years has been very successful. For example, our decision to concentrate on judicial sector outreach as opposed to legislative reform was very strategic because we found enormous success in working on a grassroots level with judges rather than waste your time with MPs. We have found enormous success with the media 
in Lebanon in which we've managed to move the needle there quite significantly, the health sector. So in recognizing the nodes of power and the communities of power in a country like Lebanon, where the uh, sort of to the traditional three branches of government don't necessarily hold all of the power is key, not only to survival, but to future success. And we have had a lot of experience in maneuvering that and, and figuring out how to work with it. Well, on that note, I think we've got to end it right there. Thank you guys so much for coming on the on the show. We really, really uh, enjoyed having you speak. It was very insightful. I learned a lot. Yeah, me too. Thanks for having us. Uh, and of course, we will be back next week with another episode of the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Uh, until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. I'm Tarek Zaydan. And I'm Yumna Makhlouf. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.